0: here, actually almost over if you stop to think about it, we're 1 o'clock and it's over a little after 7, <coughs> The Feast of Tabernacles follows, we have the weekly Sabbath on the 12th and then the 13th through the 19th is the feast with the last great day on the Sabbath of the 20th. So what we'll do is we'll continue our uh, one o'clock meetings on the Sabbaths, the weekly Sabbath before and then during the Feast of Tabernacles on all the holy days, we'll meet at one o'clock and then we'll meet at eleven o'clock on the intervening days. So that's pretty much the schedule laid out. We'll give you some details about dinners and various other things uh, a little later on. Let's go to Leviticus 23, <clears throat> I think this is generally a good place to start for a Day of Atonement and the things that God has is meet in due season for us on this particular day. <clears throat> there is a great deal of meaning and symbolism within the Day of Atonement. But here he says down in chapter 23 of, verse, uh, of Levit- Leviticus, verse 27, Also on the tenth day of this seventh month there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation to you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. So, several things here. A day of atonement. Uh, that's... Coming to oneness, uh, atonement was given uh, by Christ. We didn't know of the two goats. One was representing Satan, who uh, was cast out into the wilderness all alone, uh, solitary confinement. The other was killed that we might have our sins forgiven, and uh, the penalty of the sins were placed. "...on the heads of the goat that died. The guilt of the sin was placed upon the one sent into the wilderness. <coughs> Satan, I mean Christ, is not guilty of our sins. If any vestige of that idea of both those goats representing Satan remains. How could Christ have our sins conferred, that is, the guilt, on Him? He tempts no man, but we are tempted and drawn away of our own human nature... and by Satan who tempts us. So that goat was put in solitary confinement, was not killed, but Christ was killed that the guilt of our sins might be expunged, and it is our sins which separate us from God, Isaiah fifty nine one. So if our sins are forgiven, then we can come to be at one with and close to God, Instead of being separated by them. So, this is a day uh, of great importance in our becoming at one with the Father and with the Son, and in some ways, in particular, with the Son, because this day represents the wedding of the Lamb. Uh, it's a strange feeling, in a way, to be fasting on a day that represents your wedding. <laughs> Uh, the wedding feast, the wedding supper, as we read about in the New Testament. But the thing is this isn 't the wedding supper yet. this isn 't that time yet. Uh, this is the years preceding that. And Christ did tell his disciples that when he was asked or told others about his disciples, he says, well why why aren 't they fasting?" Well, that's because they are with me. And when you're with me, you don't need to fast. It's when I'm gone is when we need to fast. So we're in the position right now in the preparation of the bride to get her ready for the wedding. She is not ready. Pentecost does represent the time of the engagement to Christ. And then we go through in human terms, the long, hot summer uh, of growth and overcoming and of being without him, as you remember in the Song of Songs. She was there by herself, and he wasn't there, and uh, she desired him to come. And then when he did come, she wasn't quite ready to throw off the covers and go to meet him at the door because she didn't want to get cold. Uh, So, there is preparation that has to be done, and we have to be ready, hopefully by the time He comes, and have oil in our lamps, uh, so that He recognizes us as His bride, not one who let it go out. So, yes, we still fast on Day of Atonement. I do believe it will be like the fasts There in the book of Zechariah, one of which we just did, the fast of the seventh month, he says they're fast, but they'll turn into feasts of joy. Once the battle against Jerusalem, that is, the church of God, has stopped, no more battle, no more warfare, no more defiling of the temple, uh, no more burning of the city, No more killing of the leaders. Uh, The temple of God will come, and the Father and the Son will be the temple of it. And we will be kings and priests in that kingdom. And why do we need to fast anymore? It's like Christ said, when you're with me, you don't need to fast. It's when you're separate from me that you need to fast. So we still fast on Day of Atonement. and we still fast on those other days... Because we as a church are still under siege from Satan and our human nature, and that hasn't gone away. It's still here. We still have to fight and work at overcoming and growing and being like our bridegroom to come so that we're of like kind as Him when He does arrive to take us and marry us on the Day of Atonement before His Father on His throne. So this day pictures becoming at one with Christ in marriage, and as we fast, becoming at one by repenting of our sins and coming to be closer to Him instead of being separated by sin. So this is very, very important, even the very first word, a day of atonement where our sins are atoned and where we become at one is another Way, if you break the word down, at one. And sin is what separates, so becoming at one certainly, I think, is a valid breakdown of that word. It shall also be a holy convocation, uh, a time when God's people meet together. We are not to uh, depart from meeting together, as Paul said in Hebrews, and so much the more as we see the day draw near. So this, this is one of those seven holy days or holy convocations, a commanded assembly where we have to come together before God. You can't have a holy convocation of one. Uh, we have to come together as a congregation because we're supposed to be coming at one and love one another uh, even as we're supposed to become at one with God. So it's a holy convocation where we meet together to represent oneness with God by being at one among ourselves. If we can't get along with each other, how do we get along throughout eternity? So that's what we're here to learn to do. And with that comes afflicting our souls or fasting, neither food nor water during the Day of Atonement, because it is a time to be afflicted because of the sin that still remains and our work at getting rid of it and offer an offering before God. And you shall do no work in that same day, for it is a day of atonement to make an atonement for you before the eternal your God. So the day should be centered on God, it should be centered on our relationship with Him, uh, not on other things. On other holy days, he says no work except the preparation of food. but on this one, no work at all. no food prep, no nothing. Because the sole focus is to make this atonement with God. It's so critical for us to be close to God. And the fasting is what helps humble us, which helps turn us to God, because we realize how physical and how weak and how small we are, and that without food and water, uh, we get very weak very quickly and ultimately die from it, because we're not sustained. Well, what sustains us in our Christian life? God's Spirit. And the Day of Atonement is picturing us becoming at one in spirit with him. So it says, Whatsoever soul it be that shall not be afflicted in that day, uh, not fast, he shall be cut off from among his people. Being cut off from among God's people is a very, very sad thing because we are to be 144,000 combined as his people who become his bride. And if you're cut off from that, you're in pretty sad shape, because this is our day of salvation. We don't get another one. This one's ours. Uh, People in the world who don't understand will have theirs in the great white throne judgment. But this is it for you and me. And we do not want to be cut off in any way from among God's people. We need to be front and center right with them. See, he he pronounces a curse there of being cut off. So cutting ourselves off or being cut off by God means that you're cut off. And Christ said if you aren't connected to his people and to him, you will wither and die. So we can't afford to let ourselves be cut off because any part that is cut off from the body Cannot long survive. In other words, we need each other. We need to love each other. We need to care about each other and support each other because we're a body and the whole body needs supported. So being cut off is a very dire circumstance. And whatsoever soul it be that does any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. So, working on this day is pretty important, or not working is. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of rest. And it's interesting here, he defines the day, uh, as he does in other places, but he does specifically here. You notice back in verse 27, he says that the Day of Atonement is the tenth day. Well, he tells you how to count that back here then in verse 32. You shall afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month, in the evening. From evening to evening shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So, it is at the end of the ninth, the evening beginning the tenth, and you celebrate from evening to evening. Now, that is in concert with Genesis 1-5 and the other verses there, where it says the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day, and so on, because the day begins in the evening, and then following that is the morning or the daylight part of the day. So if anybody gets confused about that, uh, Leviticus should be able to straighten it out for them. You do it from evening to evening, from the end of the 9th at evening is, begins the 10th, and it's over 24 hours later at evening again. Uh, there have been people here and there who've tried to convince me over the years that we should begin the day at dawn or at uh, sunup, uh, depending on their particular view. And uh, there's another group now that's influencing people. I don't know whether they've influenced them on that particular aspect or not, but they've influenced them to keep a 360-day calendar, which is uh, highly presumptuous. God has said we're going to have a 360-day year again. That's very clear in Scripture, but it isn't here yet. And until it is here, you can't keep what is not. Reality is we have 365, and that's how long it takes for the moon or the earth to go around the sun. So, that is the calendar we have to follow, because God says to use the moon and the sun as our calendar. And it doesn't say to use the stars, it says use the sun and the moon for your calendar, and he created the stars also, there in Genesis 1, 14 and 15. So, don't be led astray by anybody who begins to tell you that we're on a celestial calendar of some kind that bypasses the sun and moon, and then suddenly you have the holy days coming not near the full moon or the new moon, but in the middle of the month, wherever it just happens to go. And not only that, they'll be completely out of feast season pretty soon, Because when you're keeping a 360 and you have 365 and a quarter, you drift out a season pretty fast. So that is abominable, satanic doctrine. Let it be known. So anyway, he tells us here, in conjunction with atonement, that is to be evening to evening. I didn't start my fast at dawn this morning. I started it last night evening at the end of the night. And I'll end it this evening at sunset. Then it goes on to talk about the Feast of Tabernacles. But today let's go to Leviticus 25. Uh, this is an aspect of the Day of Atonement that sometimes I think maybe gets overlooked. Uh, Leviticus 25, The Eternal spoke to Moses and Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath to the Eternal. So they were going to be going into the Promised Land with Joshua, and they were to start this cycle. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest to the land, a Sabbath for the eternal. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. That which grows of its own accord of the harvest you shall not reap, neither gather the grapes of the vine undressed, for it is a year of rest to the land. So he has here a six-year period of time followed by a seventh year or a Sabbath. The week has six days and then a Sabbath. Uh, The land has six years of production and then a Sabbath. So uh, we are currently in a a third tide here, I believe the sixth year, of the seven year cycle as we best understand it. Uh, that means that this coming year, uh, if I, or am I a year ahead of myself? No, this was, this is the third tide year, so next year would be, uh, the, the rest year in which we don't plant, uh, crops and so on and we give the land a rest. The Sabbath of the land shall be food for you. For you and for your servant, your maid, the hired servant, the stranger that sojourns with you, and your cattle and your beasts that are in the land, shall all the increase thereof be food. So you're not to uh, plant and harvest, uh, but the increase is to be food. Now, this is tied in with a bigger picture. You shall number seven Sabbaths of years to you, seven times seven years. And the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Makes it very clear here. Seven times seven is forty-nine. And the next year is a Jubilee. Now you could use this also in counting Pentecost where people get confused because it says seven Sabbaths uh, you count and 7 weeks are complete and then the next is the 50th which would have to be a sunday uh, not a monday that would monday would be the 51st but this shows 49 very clearly followed by the next one which is the 50th not the 51st you couldn't get confused here it's just too simple in the way it is but now, how does that tie with today? The jubilee was announced on the day of atonement. And therefore, it becomes very, very important for us to understand atonement in the meaning of the jubilee. Now, I believe that we are probably at the end of this 6 year uh, today on atonement, and the seventh year, the, the year of rest, begins today. So when it ends, then we have what? This is 19 or 2019, so if we have the seventh year, 2019 through atonement of 2020, that completes the seventh year. And I believe that we can count back, and I'll go there uh, at least briefly today, and show us that it uh, we are probably one seven-year period, or one seven-year land Sabbath period from the Jubilee, which probably this time will mark the return of Christ uh, before the Jubilee the year before, uh, and begin to give the land rest, but... Uh, then he will have the seven last plagues while he marries his wife and has a year off, as Deuteronomy 24.5 tells us he must do. You don't work the year after you get married. You cheer up your bride. So we'll be at the Father's throne. Uh, Wedding supper will go, and we'll have a year with him before we come back and go to work. Uh, He will announce the Jubilee year, and then the earth will be at peace uh, and the land will be given back to whom it belongs. That was part of the Jubilee year. We could go on here. Uh, You shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet sound throughout all your land and you shall hallow the fiftieth year. Uh, It is to be hallowed, set apart as special, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee to you, and you shall return every man to his possession, and you shall return every man to his family. It puts families back together. If they've strayed apart, as we are doing in our present nuclear generation, and you have People in the family living overseas and from one coast to the other. And families aren't together like they used to be a hundred years ago. In my own experience, and I'm not quite a hundred yet, uh, most families stayed pretty much intact. Uh, most of my cousins lived within walking distance. All my grandparents lived within walking distance. Families were together. And in that sense, part of it was because my grandfather had given some of his kids ten acres apiece, or thereabouts, uh, off of his farm and ranch. So we lived on his ranch, basically. All it had been deeded over, but it was still part of the family ranch. And we had closeness there with family and cousins and grew up together. Some of you remember that. Uh those of you who are not very old <laughs> don't remember much of that because you had to travel a thousand miles to see Aunt Gertie or whatever, uh, or your cousins, because they're scattered all over the place. Uh, wars helped do that. Uh, modern transportation has helped cause that. People finding jobs elsewhere. A lot of things have gone into it. But with the law that God made, the size society was to be governed with, was that when they came into the land, Joshua would divide it up and give certain land to certain tribes, and within that tribe, all the families were given their own land. And in some cases, they mismanaged. You couldn't buy land back then, but you could lease it for up to 49 years. Uh, somebody didn't want their land, they wanted to be in town or whatever, they could, as soon as the Jubilee came, they got their land back, they could lease it out to somebody else. Most hopefully weren't that foolish, but sometimes over a period of 49 years, for one reason or another, they might lease out part of the land because they needed uh, money or whatever, but that land was all to go back to the family every 50 years and you could start over so if there was a fool in your family that somehow lost your land you got it back and you had that freedom and that liberty to have to be a landowner so it returned to you a jubilee uh, shall that 50th year be to you you'll neither sow nor reap Uh, That's which grows of itself. You don't pick the grapes. It is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. Or you don't dress the grapes. You don't uh, prune them and take care of them as you do in a normal year. For it is the jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. You didn't plant. You didn't uh, trim back your grapes, but apparently you could eat what was there. uh, That just came of itself. In the year of this jubilee, you shall return every man to his possession. And if you sell anything to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor's hand, you shall not oppress one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy of your neighbor. And according to the number of years of the fruits, he shall sell to you. So if you sold him land in the 30th year, Uh, He was only going to have it for uh, another 19 years. So uh, the amount of the lease or the buy, if you want to call it a buy, would have uh, uh, been diminished by the amount of years that remained. So it's interesting. It says, I didn't look up the Hebrew. It says you could buy it. Uh, People thought when they signed a lease here, they were buying some of them. Or at least they came to think that later. What a mess we've had over that. (coughs) But no, it was a lease. Always was. Now, so, let's go to Luke 4. So I want to talk about this jubilee a bit. Here Christ uh, had been tempted, he'd been doing some preaching before, uh, but he came down to Nazareth where he had grown up, verse 16, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. There was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me. Now, Isaiah was a prophecy, remember. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and Christ certainly had been, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the eternal. Now, he stopped right there. We're going to go back to Isaiah in a little bit and read where he read before and after what he read. But he only read so much, and he stopped. (laughs) Now, it's interesting what goes on down below this. He closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began to say to them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. So he read part of Isaiah, and he said, This day is this starting to be fulfilled. That's very important. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum do also here in your country. So he says, Just as sure as I'm sitting here, I know you're going to come and say... uh, You're beginning to proclaim the recovering of sight to the blind and setting at liberty and bringing all these blessings. Why don't you heal yourself? And why don't you heal all these people? Now, what was his answer? Did Christ come to heal everybody in that day and age? No. Did he come to proclaim a time when it would occur and that that prophecy would begin to be fulfilled at that time? Yes. So he said to them, uh, I say to you, verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his own country. His relatives, his friends, and so on, uh, they won't respect him. They won't believe him. They'll think their idea is just as good as his, or what on. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when he, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, saved to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. Three and a half years of drought, there were many widows, many who were in need, and yet Elijah was only sent to one, he said. And he continued, and many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Only one. And all day in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And thrust him out of the city and onto the brow of the hill where the city was built. And they were going to throw him off the cliff. But he passing through the midst of them went his way. Now, I think he's saying a lot there. He's saying, I'm reading this in Isaiah because this has meaning, and this day is the beginning of the fulfillment of what Isaiah said. And he says, you're going to think that I just said that everybody's going to be healed because that's what Isaiah kind of was saying, isn't it? But he gives them accounts of when there was healing or taking care of widows. And only one widow was taken care of, and only one leper was healed. So, God does some things, sometimes some ways, and other times he does not. Now, I appreciate what healings God gives us right now. But the time of the healing of many has not yet come. And it won't be here until God begins to reveal who the two witnesses are by doing signs and wonders that will cause 10% of the church to come to them to build the temple. And if you're expecting that to happen any other time, you're not paying attention because that is when those signs and wonders occur there in Zechariah 3, and not before. Meantime, we are still in the period of scattering, and continued scattering, and very little healing, and very little blessing. Being spewed out is not a blessing, is it? No. So we have not yet entered the time of blessing that he has promised us. So when Christ quoted uh, quoted Isaiah, he was quoting about a time in the future that would occur, and he was beginning to preach it and proclaim it at that point, but it would not come in the universal sense that Isaiah was speaking of until later. So he says, if you expect me to heal everybody, including myself, you're all wrong because I haven't always done that. In Elijah's day or Elisha's, either one, and I'm not going to do it now. Now, he did heal quite a few people. But let's go back to Isaiah and compare what Isaiah is saying to the amount of healing even and the amount of resurrection that Christ did while he was here on the earth. It wasn't much by comparison. Now, he says this day is beginning to be fulfilled, but it wouldn't be fully fulfill, fulfilled. Uh, let's see, Isaiah 61 is where we're headed. Let's go back to 60 a little bit, though. Here he's talking uh, about now. Arise, shine, for your light is come, the glory of the eternal risen upon you, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, in verse chapter 60, and gross darkness the people, but the eternal shall arise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So he's talking about the time just before Christ returns where God begins to bless His people, His church, and they will not be in darkness but in the light. Just as Paul told us, and we just read, I think, uh, well, just recently, you're not of the darkness, you are of the light. So we should understand. He says in verse 10, at the end of it, In my wrath I smote you, but in my favor have I had mercy on you. So he's speaking to the church all through here. Now there's an ultimate fulfillment with Israel as well. But it's first to the church. He spewed us out, and now he is going to turn and shine his face upon us very soon now, when the time is right, and have favor and mercy on us. Your gates will open continually, shall not be shut. You don't have to worry. You're under protection, wall of fire. And the nations and kingdoms that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly wasted. He's not talking about the millennium here. Because once he sets it up and people are going to be living God's way, there aren't going to be enemies around to come and give them problems. It's now that we still have Satan and his demons in the world around us, and those nations will be wasted. Does it not say that the church, led by the two witnesses, will do the plagues of Egypt upon the whole earth, the lack of rain from Elijah upon the whole earth? You think that's not going to destroy nations? Right there in Mitzrium, those plagues absolutely destroyed the Egyptian empire. And he's talking about the same things here. This is the end of the age that he's talking about. Now, are we picking up the context? Because it isn't far from here that Christ is going to be quoting from there in Luke 4. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The fir tree, the pine tree, the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. Doesn't he tell us in Isaiah 41, he'll plant seven trees in the wilderness, seven churches in the wilderness. The sons also of them that afflicted you shall come bending to you, and all they that despise you shall bow themselves down at the soles of your feet. It says that back there in Isaiah 45, where it shows that the... uh, The treasures will come to light here at the end. We're very near that time. And he says down uh, verse 14 of chapter 45, Thus says the eternal labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Ethiopia and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours, and they shall come after you. In chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down to you. They shall make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is none else. There is no other God. That's right after these treasures are shown in Isaiah 45, where it says that they may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Eternal, and there is none else. God's holy treasures, the minds of Solomon, The records of ancient Israel are all going to be revealed. And the whole world is going to see that God is the only God. And people will come and say, God is with you, and He's the only God, so I'm coming with you. Same thing we're reading here in chapter 60. They'll come and bow themselves at the soles of your feet, and shall call you the city of the eternal The Zion of the Holy One of Israel. This is talking about those who are going to become the 144,000. Because they're the city of God, Revelation 21, who comes down. So, these will be the forerunners before they are made immortal. Still talking about people perishing and war above this. So, it's not the millennium yet. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no man went through you. Who comes to God's people today? Basically no one. No one came and went through you. You were forsaken and hated of the world. But they're going to see the glory of God come through the things that are revealed and then they're going to come and say, Oh, God is with you. There's a scripture like that in Zechariah. I'm coming with you, for God is with you. Toward the end of chapter 11 or 12, somewhere right in there. So, no man went through you, and I will make you an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. Not made yet, but I will make you that. Because you'll become God and and, uh, rule with Christ uh, a thousand years as kings and priests. You shall also suck the milk of the Gentiles and suck the breast of kings and you shall know that I the Eternal am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. He says, For brass I will bring gold and for iron I will bring silver and for wood brass and for stones iron. I will also make your officers peace and your exactors righteousness. Tells us in Isaiah 54, I think the last verse, that he will bring his righteousness to us instead of our self-righteousness. And then violence will be gone. Your people also shall be, verse 21, righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So he's going to call out a people to finish up the work at the end, And they're going to be given the land. Now there's the context of what Christ was saying in Luke 4 about the acceptable year of the Lord is the Jubilee is when the land will be returned to the tribes in the original promised land that it was given to and to the families that survive. They'll be the branch of God's planting. So I don't think there could be much question that this context is talking the beginning of the millennium, which if you have a 6,000 year period, 50 years, jubilees all through 6,000 years, then the millennium begins at a jubilee. That's when the land will all be returned around the world and everybody will have peace and safety and be landowners. the branch of my planting, that I may be glorified. When will he be glorified? When he's king of kings in the world tomorrow. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the eternal, will hasten it in his time. Now, he says there's a time to come when this will happen, but it's not yet, as Isaiah writes this. Now, in the church... Will a little one become a thousand? No. But in the millennium, when everything is peaceful and people can have children, and they won't die, and they won't be aborted, and they won't go to war, and they won't be killed, one can become a thousand pretty fast under those conditions. So this is the time that we're leading up to that Isaiah is talking about. So let's get on down into that. The Spirit of the Eternal God, this is where Christ began to quote, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. Now, did he preach good tidings while he was here to the meek? Yes, he did. He told the presumptuous and froward who they were as well. Did he bind up the brokenhearted? Yes, he did, to a degree, but not all of them. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound? Some, not all. Were there still prisons after he died? Yes, there were. Did Peter and some of the apostles get cast into those prisons? Yes, they did. Did Paul get cast into prison? Yes, he did. So obviously, the time Christ was speaking of, was this was the beginning of it as he spoke it, but it wasn't the final fulfillment of it by any means. And that's why he used those examples in Luke 4 to say, what did you think, Elijah was going to raise up everybody or heal everybody or take care of every widow? No. Did you think Elisha was going to heal every leper? No, it's not what happened. There was a beginning. Elijah and Elisha are types for the future. In Christ, what he was reading was something for the future. It would be done in part in his day, like it was in Elijah and Elisha's day, but only in part. He didn't come to save the world at that time. So there were still sick people and there were still prisons after he finished everything he did here on the earth and left to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal. Now here is the essence of why he quoted this particular passage from Isaiah. Yes, he was there in part to fulfill what went before that just as Elijah and Elisha did in part. But what he was doing was proclaiming the acceptable year of the eternal. Now, in this context, let's understand what the acceptable year is because someone might question Luke 4 and say, well, is that really talking about the Jubilee and the Millennium? Well, what did we read before here? That God will... Conquer peoples and they will come to us and say, We want to be with you, you're of God. The, it it merges into the millennium there, saying that then people will multiply. So he's speaking of the end times in the beginning of the millennium. Let's see if that continues. Go on down in chapter 61. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. He didn't read that in the synagogue that day. He stopped by saying he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Didn't read anymore. Closed the book. And he left out, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, when is the day of the vengeance of our God? Right here at the end is when the vengeance of God is. He didn't read that. To comfort all that mourn. Now, he comforted some that mourned while he was here, but not all. But when the acceptable year of the eternal comes, the mourning of all peoples will be removed, and peace will come to all. And a little one can become a thousand people. To appoint to them that mourn in Zion, to give to them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. We don't have that yet. We, we still have vomiting and spittle, and we're still being destroyed. But this is a time then when he's going to give beauty instead of Mourning. Ashes. You put sackcloth and ashes on to mourn. The oil of joy instead of mourning. There's not too much to be joyful about right now, is there? The world is falling apart. The church is falling apart. We ourselves are not what we ought to be. Well, we can joy and hope for the future is what we can joy in. But there's not a whole lot of joy around right now. It's a fruit of God's Spirit, but that fruit isn't being produced much in today's world. It will be in the future, is what he's saying. It's something that is to come. Was was Christ a joyful man while he was on the earth? No. Joy was not his major emotion. Now, it's a fruit of the Spirit of God, and he had God's Spirit... So he certainly had a certain amount of joy, but overall, the statement is made, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because of the sin and the wretchedness that he saw around him. Okay, joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he might be glorified. See, he's going to start over with a jubilee year. And you're going to have a whole new ownership of the land, a whole new planting, a whole new crop, a whole new world at that time. They shall build the old waste. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. So, he says here, the acceptable day of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of God. So, the vengeance of God comes just before the millennium and the beginning of blessing for the entire world. That's what this whole context is about. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the alien shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Have plenty of help. But you shall be named the priests of the eternal. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall you boast yourself. For the shame you've suffered, you'll receive double in blessing, and so on. Talking about the time when Christ marries his bride, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the eternal. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So you have here the acceptable year of the Lord, and it is a time that includes God's people here at the end being blessed in chapter 60, a premonition of the millennium an the acceptable year coming, and blessings the millennium begin, and the bride marries Christ. Atonement pictures the marriage of bride to of Christ to his bride as well. So he stopped what he said he can not he had come. To do some of these things, but to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal, and the fact that he stopped there shows that that was the emphasis of why he was reading that. Now, the best that scholars have been able to put together is that 26 and 27, those two years, were the years of the preparation and the beginning of... Uh, the ministry of Christ and that he made this proclamation they would have known when the jubilees were he made that proclamation in year 27 Okay, so if he proclaimed a year in 27 as the acceptable year of the Lord then all the jubilees up until the millennium are only Types of what will come. Do we grasp that? Every 50th year, we have a type of the millennium. All the land was returned. uh, Everybody's debts were all totally forgiven. And you start it over. That's what the millennium is all about. The weekly Sabbath represents that as well. Hebrews 4 goes into it clearly about how uh, the Sabbath is a picture of the rest that shall come, the millennium. So the week is a day as is a thousand years, Numbers fourteen thirty-four. So the weekly cycle represents the 7,000-year plan of God, six years to man and Satan, and then a thousand years under Christ with peace. And even within the jubilee cycle every seventh year was a land a year of release as well and a year of prosperity that god would give so if we had followed those land sabbaths faithfully throughout history we would still be having what god promised there but we didn't follow them and we didn't follow the millennium and Now we buy and sell land, and we don't pay any attention to the 50th year. And the precepts of God have gone away. They don't mean anything to anybody anymore. But he proclaimed that this would occur. Now let's follow that up a little bit. If that indeed was year 27, and uh, you had 50 years, another jubilee, let's see, that would have been about... 77 AD and the church would have been going on there for close to 50 years and then it would die out pretty quickly and blessings wouldn't be around Christ would not be there to heal anybody the apostles who both healed and resurrected a few people weren't around anymore and that stuff stopped now a few people who still obeyed God might have had a little healing here and there, might have had a few blessings here and there, but the church basically disappeared. Now, God said it wouldn't die out, but it pertinent did. came really close. And it stayed that way because the gospel of God, the truth of God, was basically forgotten by almost the entire world. There were a few remnants in uh, Europe that still understood the Sabbath and the feast days and didn't keep the pagan holidays, and a few of them came over here when America began to be settled. And they kept some of those things for a short while, but they got shouted down and it basically got forgotten, except for a few people that kind of kept a little bit of it alive here and there. But as far as being anything active and alive, when did God set his hand to make his truth known? Anybody know? Somebody tell me. When did did God, after Christ proclaimed this, in 27 AD apparently, when did God make a move to do something along these lines? 1900 years later. 1926 and 27 is when he began to call Herbert Armstrong to learn the Sabbath, to learn the truth, and begin teaching and preaching. And it wasn't like what came over in uh, the ships from England, where it's just sort of a few people understood and it pretty much died out, or the Seventh day Adventists, Thyatira, understood to some degree, but it never really went anywhere. And the truth of God was never really there. A little bit was. A little understanding. But the Seventh-day Adventists never understood much of this book. They had the Sabbath, which they virtually worshipped, but that was primarily it. It wasn't until 1926 and 27 that God began to work with a man to show him a wider amount of truth that then could be proclaimed by radio and television around the world and many could be called so that a work ultimately could be done. Herbert Armstrong did not do the final work of God. His was a preparatory work. Many were called in his work out of which a few will be chosen to do the final work. Has the vengeance of the Lord come, as Isaiah 61 talks about? Has the end come? No. Many were called and spewed, and few are being chosen from that because the major work and the putting down and destroying of nations was not done by Herbert Armstrong. Did you see water turned to blood? Did you see three-and-a-half-year droughts? Did you see all of those things that happened in Egypt that he says will happen in the end time there in Revelation 11? No. Didn't happen. But, 1900 years to the year, After Christ prepared and began His ministry, 26 and 27, God prepared another man to do a ministry of God, Herbert Armstrong. And he made no bones about it, that he was the first to proclaim it in 1900 years. And indeed, he was. Now, if the Jubilee was 27 AD and a type of the final jubilee was in 1927 when freedom from satan freedom from this world freedom from its religions began to be proclaimed to us so that we had a liberty that we had not had before how much liberty do truly understand and serve God and become a candidate for the Bride of Christ did you learn in the Methodist or the Baptist or the Presbyterian Church. You didn't have that understanding and that liberty to work on salvation. Not until it was proclaimed to us beginning with a man who began to be trained in 26 and 27 and that was a type of the Jubilee. Now it's gone on. And 100 years later would be another jubilee. Well, there was one since him, uh, 27, There again in 77. But the church was in a mess, and there wasn't much liberty. Just like most jubilees that occurred throughout history, nothing much happened. Because they weren't critical issue times. Most jubilees were not even noticed. Maybe a few Jews somewhere. You couldn't say anything notable happened. They were only a type that is now understood by a few. Now Christ said in 27 AD, this is one of them, and I'm here to heal a few, to restore a few, to comfort a few, and he says it's the year of the Lord that that is to begin with his ministry. And he stopped. Because the next significant jubilee would be at the end. Actually, probably the last two. or, or Well, let's see, you'd almost have to say, if there was one in 27 and one in 77, then in 2027 20, 20, 20, there'd be three that, that had some significant. But the middle one didn't seem to have much. He had already begun his work after 1,900 years, and he apparently had another hundred years that he wanted to add on to finish the 6,000 years of Satan's rule and man's rule here on the earth. Six days shall you labor. Six days we have labored. 6,000 years now, almost. And that's going to end with the vengeance of the Eternal against Satan and his system, and by using his people to destroy nations, and then a jubilee will come, and it will be the one that everyone has been hoping for since it was first instituted. So there will be a thousand years of peace. A day is as a thousand years. I do believe the the 7,000 year plan of God is intact. Herbert Armstrong was right about that. Christ declared a jubilee, and 1,900 years later, another jubilee occurred when Herbert Armstrong began to be trained and began to preach. A hundred years after that will be the end of all this. I think, unless there's something we don't understand way beyond our present comprehension, that the jubilee will be declared in 2027, and the millennium will begin. And it will be declared on the Day of Atonement. That is the day that Christ uh, marries his bride. And therefore, the government is then intact to begin the millennium to rule a thousand years. So, God is precise. He gave us six thousand years on our own, and then He gives us a thousand years under His rule. He can't cheat the devil by ten years. He gave him 6,000 years to be the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this world. Now, he may cut him a little short and give it back to him at the end of the millennium. I don't know exactly how that will work. But uh, 6,000 years is it. And we're nearing that. If Christ proclaimed that, I cannot, pro- I cannot begin to imagine that after 2027, we have another 50 years to go. I can't even imagine it. Because this world is in such shape that no flesh will be saved alive in that long a period of time. Not only that, but he's made it very clear to the end-time church that out of those that were called and during the generation of the preaching of Herbert Armstrong, there would be people who would survive, would not all die out before the latter temple is built. And that those old people would be able to compare the former with the latter. And if it's another 50 years after 2027, ain't none of us going to be around. So this has got to be it. It has to be it. If this is the sixth year of the cycle, which I think it is based on going back to Luke, next year is the seventh, And there will be one more seven-year period until the Jubilee is due. So we got seven years, probably, until the return of Christ, and then a year later, the Jubilee. That's the way it appears to be. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Because you can take those statements that God made uh, about... A day is is a thousand years, and how there would be 6,000 years of man. The weekly Sabbath pictures it, and it pictures the whole thousand-year plan of God. So how can you add to or take from that? I know one guy who writes papers 50 to 200 pages thick, who says, well, we've already been here over 6,000 years. That doesn't count anymore. How does he get that? He gets that by going back to some of the historians who can't decide when creation was. They put all their genealogies together, and Herman Hay tried to do it. He tried to go back (coughs) through the genealogies of, (coughs) of Egypt and prove when creation was. That was his whole point, so he'd know when the end would be. And he got so confused, he finally says, you might as well throw my compendium, the book that contained all that info, in the fire and burn it. Because he says, I haven't figured it out. You can't do it that way. Why not just accept what God said? I'm going to give you 6,000 years, or 7,000. Six for you and the devil, and then a Sabbath that simple so if christ proclaimed the acceptable year of the lord in 27 and we've seen it born out in 1926 and 7 and are about to again within another 7 8 years if we've seen that then to me it's real simple just count back 4000 years in increments of 50 And you know when the creation was. Because he said it'll be seven days. And a day is as a thousand years. And Paul said clearly in Hebrews 4 that the millennial rest is pictured by the weekly Sabbath, which pictures the 7,000 year plan. So figuring out when creation was doesn't need to involve a lot of lamplight late at night and computers. Just accept that God said it would be 7,000 years and don't say, well, we went past that because creation was here. No. All you have to do is count the jubilees backward, find creation, count the jubilees forward to know when Christ is coming. He didn't say we wouldn't know the year. He said we wouldn't know the day or the hour. But he said, you better look at the leaves on the trees and figure it out pretty well. Somebody told me recently that, well, I had said that certain things were going to happen on certain days, and they didn't. No, it didn't. I said, this looks to be the most obvious at the moment with the information I have, but I've never set exact times for when the crash would come or America would be invaded. I felt it could happen as early as 17, but that was before I finally got it through my thick head that it wasn't until two years after the 70 that they were allowed to even begin to go build Jerusalem. The second year of Darius, not or Cyrus, not the first year, not at the end of the 70, but at least two years later. And the 430 years, I do believe, ended in 2017 in the fall. But he said, there, it won't happen immediately. He said, it will be soon, soon, very close. It's come, it's here. It won't be like the echoing of the, of the uh, canyon. It's going to come soon after that. So, both those events, I think the 70 years that I'll discuss at another time and have a little bit before, uh, from the time Herbert Armstrong began the college and began to have a, a long captivity in Babylon here in the church that 70 years probably ended in the fall or the yeah fall of of uh, uh, 2017 in the 430 if Roanoke was the beginning of this nation and I think it was would have also begun uh, ended in the July of 2017 and that's when we had the darkness that came over the whole land at noon as the final warning that this stuff is going to start coming. And it has sped up and kept coming faster and faster ever since then, beginning with a terrible hurricane right afterward. I believe we're there. I believe we're in it. I'm not going to try to tell you the day or the hour, but I think you better look at these next this next seven-year cycle followed by, by the announcing of the Jubilee at Atonement in 2027, and the Millennium will probably be here. Well, this day has incredible meaning for us. As the Bride of Christ to be married when He comes, as the ones to help Him rule in the Millennium, this day is tied together with the Millennium by being the Jubilee. Announcing the Jubilee. It was announced on atonement. Why not on Feast of Tabernacles? Why not on Feast of Trumpets? Because the bride in her freedom and liberty to rule the world is pictured by the Day of Atonement. And her becoming totally at one with Christ is the Day of Atonement. And the marriage of those together sets the stage for the beginning of the millennium, the 50th, year when the thousand year starts. It's all tied together. So we afflict ourselves today because we are not married to Christ yet. And when we are, we'll have a wedding supper maybe on the Day of Atonement because we'll be with Him and we won't need to fast anymore. And it also pictures the day when the world will not be in uh Famine and pestilence and not eating, and suddenly they're going to have peace and plenty and prosperity as well. And they won't be fasting anymore and starving. They'll eat. This day isn't much fun physically, but spiritually it is very, very rich. So, let's think about those things.